0: If you would, please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, and be reading just, just the beginning, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I'll read it, and I'll pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. For without your word, we would be lost and trapped in everlasting darkness. But you have come And shown us the light, and that light is our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see him tonight, even in shadow form. May we see him in your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was recalling this week, uh, thinking about my time in seminary, and particularly my time in uh, preaching class. Fun class, and I remember my... Uh, professor saying to me and saying to the class, "Preach every single text as if it is the most important text in the entire Bible, and this week that 's actually quite fitting because this might actually be the most important text in all of the bible it 's certainly in the top five it 's one of the most significant texts in all of scripture and even more than that, it's one of the most significant moments in history when the Lord speaks into a dark world and he calls our forefather Abraham. This text is a turning point. It's a new beginning. It's a great revealing of God's ultimate plan. And one of the things that I want you to notice as we start, and, and David King Mentioned this so well just last week that these texts we're looking at are only to be understood in light of their larger covenantal context. This text should and must be understood in light of the covenant of grace. Pastor King taught us last week and reminded us that that covenant began all the way in the beginning, right after the fall. ...of man, the covenant of grace was promised... ...albeit in the form of a threat to Satan... ...that the seed of the woman will come... ...and he will crush the head of the serpent. And that is the very beginning of this promise of grace... ...a threat to those who are separated from God. This line had been drawn from the very beginning... ...and we saw this enmity... Building that God himself would establish between his godly seed and the seed of the world. Eventually, the Savior would come through this godly seed, this godly offspring. But that was a long time ago when we come to Abraham. Time has gone on. Things have gotten worse. Cain has killed Abel. We read about Lamech who murders and abuses others. We see the development of the the seed of Satan and its building. They are growing cities. Technology is developing. Uh, World and culture is being built, but not for the glory of God, but particularly set against him. It gets so bad that at one point God looks at the earth and, and there is no one who is righteous except for one, Noah. And we know about that story. And then A little bit later on, we get this other story of great darkness in Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel where all of mankind, or so it seems, comes together in a great act of pride and conceit. They build a monument to the heavens to rival God, uh, to dethrone God, as it were, to make a name for themselves. And we sort of wonder to ourselves, well, what's God doing in all of these chapters. We thought there was a promise. We thought there was a godly seed. And then Genesis 12 comes. And it shows us that God is still committed to his promise. He is going to bring his godly seed. But he has to grow it. He has to water. And, and bring sunshine. And bring the growth. And he begins this process ...under the covenant of grace yet again with Abram or Abraham. God is expanding on the covenant of grace. And I want to put forward to you as well that in this text... ...the gospel is unfolded more clearly than it has ever been up to this point. And faith becomes central to the covenant of grace. Faith becomes the instrument to receive... All of the promises and blessings of God. And Abraham, of course, becomes the father of faith. And so I have two points, two ways for us to look at this text. And they go something like this. First, we want to see the faith of the covenant of grace. The faith. And then secondly, we want to see the promises of the covenant of grace. We'll start off with the first point, the faith of the covenant of grace. Look with me at... At verse 1, now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, stop there. Notice something already. It begins with the Lord himself. As we've already noted, it's been dark for some time now. God has seemingly been absent, and yet now he speaks, and he's the covenant Lord. He's the covenant God. He uses the name that he will one day reveal to Moses as his covenantal name. The name for his people. I am who I am. It's the Lord speaking. He's beginning this process. He's the initiator. He's the one who comes to Abraham. Abraham does not come to him. He seeks out a people for himself. He's the mastermind. He's the planner. He's the prime actor in this grand covenantal story. He's the one speaking. And what does he say? Look with me at the rest of 12.1. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so he gives this One command, and it's really the only command he gives in this text. But I want you to see something about this commandment. At the essence of this command is faith. It is a command to believe. After all, what does he tell Abraham? He tells him to go, to follow, to leave behind, to trust in God's guidance, to really follow God... Wherever God is going to take him. And notice something here. God doesn't give Abraham a whole lot of details, does he? He doesn't even tell him where the land is. He doesn't come to Abraham Abraham and say, there's this great housing development they're building over in Canaan. No, he tells him nothing at all. He simply says, follow. And Abraham is left in suspense. And at some level, I want you to see... The simplicity of the gospel call here in this text. We don't actually see a gospel call that's so pure and simple again until we come to the gospels of Jesus Christ. Think about what it is that Jesus Christ says to call his disciples. Matthew 4.19 Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's it. Or in John 1.39, what does he say? He says, come and you will see. Or perhaps the best one, to Matthew, he simply says, follow me. It's simple. It's pure. It is the command of faith. Believe and get up and follow. Here is the command that Abraham is given. But I want you to see that it is, in essence, a commandment of faith. It could only be obeyed by faith. Abraham could not have done this but for his faith in the Lord. And, and actually, that is exemplified for us in this text and in Genesis chapter 11. And what do I mean by that? Let me try to explain here. The, the timeline of Genesis 12 and Genesis 11 are not chronological. And so Genesis, the very ending of Genesis 11 actually comes after Genesis 12. Now, let me read for you what happens at the very end of Genesis 11. You could just turn back in your Bible, starting in verse 27. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans... But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, what is being taught here? Well, chronologically speaking, Abraham hears the call of God. But originally, his father goes with him. Terah packs up many in the family. And they begin to make this journey over to Canaan, following this ...calling that Abraham has received. But what do we see about Terah? He quits halfway in the journey. He quits right in the middle. He settles in Haran. He does not go and follow all the way to the land of promise. And after all, this makes perfect sense. is not a man of faith. He's not a man who trusts in the Lord. For example, in Joshua... Chapter 24, he tells us that Abraham's fathers were idolaters. They worshipped other gods. And because Terah and so many others in Abraham's family did not believe, they also could not obey. And so it becomes Abraham who sets out on his own, believing, trusting, following the gospel call. We see this emphasized for us in Hebrews chapter 11. And how it describes Abraham, here's what it says. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What does that show us? Well, it shows us that faith is meant to persevere. It does not merely begin, but it presses on. It continues on. It reaches the end. Abraham can follow this call and continue in this call by faith. His faith works. After all, it's a faith that comes from God himself. It's the Lord who is strengthening Abraham. It's the Lord who is giving him mercy and strength and sustaining him by faith. That's what I want you to see first. First, This is a commandment of faith. But I want you to see something else in this first verse. This faith involves repentance. I'll read it. Verse 1. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So he doesn't just come to Abraham and say, get up and follow, but go and go from. Leave behind. Set out and depart. Uh, Leave behind your country, Abraham. Leave behind your culture. Uh, Many in your family... Leave behind your inheritance in the land of Ur where your family has lived for generations. Leave your inheritance and leave so much behind. Now, why does the Lord give Abraham such a dramatic call? It's not because God wants Abraham to be miserable. He's not messing with him or making his life unnecessarily more difficult or anything like this. No, he's showing Abraham that to follow him meant you had to have a new life. And leaving behind his family and culture and country represented that. You see, Ur of the Chaldeans was not a godly place. It was not a place filled with the knowledge and righteousness of the Lord. It was a place full of idolatry. It was a place where sun gods and moon gods were worshipped. It's the Fertile Crescent. It's Mesopotamia. It's where the Tower of Babel is built, at least in that geographical area. And so I want you to see that Abraham was being called away from an entire godless lifestyle. He was being called out of a godless country. He wasn't just giving up his family, he was giving up family gods. He wasn't just replacing one culture for a new culture. He was leaving behind a city of darkness... to be the father of a nation of priests... who would be holy to God and set apart. And so this command, I want you to see, not only presupposes faith... but it presupposes repentance too. And after all, these two things, faith and repentance, are really... Two sides of the same coin. They perfectly summarize the gospel call and our response to it. We hear the gospel and what are we to do? Believe and repent. It's exactly what Jesus said when he preaches the gospel for the first time in Mark 1.15. He says that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why am I focusing on this so much? I want you to see that the way that Abraham entered into this covenant of grace is exactly the way that you enter into the covenant of grace. It's faith. It's pure. It's simple. It's not hard to understand. And it's repentance. It's leaving behind our old ways. That's exactly what Abraham did. He left behind everything to be devoted to God. He believed God, and that was counted as righteousness for Abraham. Well, that's the faith of the covenant of grace. But now, secondly, we have the promises of the covenant of grace. Uh, Let me direct your attention to the second and third verse. God says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so these are the promises of the covenant of grace. And and many more theologians beyond myself uh, have pointed out that these promises are in reality a summary of the entire Bible. That all of the rest of the scriptures are the outworking of these promises. And I want you to notice something else about these promises. They are typological. Now, what do I mean by that fancy word? I mean that these promises have both a partial fulfillment. We see a partial fulfillment of these promises in the nation-state of Israel. But I want us to look past this. This is a series on the shadows of Christ. And also remind you that these promises have a truer and an ultimate fulfillment that we find in Christ. So there is a partial and an ultimate fulfillment of these promises. And we don't see that ultimate conclusion even until new heavens and new earth. Even until the very last book of the scripture paints us this picture of the conclusion of these promises. So what are these promises of the covenant of grace? Um, They're summarized very well, uh, I think, with these three words. And this is not unique to me. Uh, Many have pointed this out. Uh, There's a promise of land. There's a promise of people. And there's a promise of blessing. And I'll go through them just briefly and we'll see what it is that we can Uh, learn from them. First, there is a promise to Abraham of land. God promises land, and and very quickly we come to understand this to be the land of Canaan. It's the promised land. It is the blessed land that God would give to his people in the Old Testament, The, the land flowing with milk and honey. But I want you to recognize that the land represented so much more than a physical piece of ground or earth. The land was rest. The land was entering into the rest of God. To be with God himself. And the Old Testament uses this language abundantly. For example, in Deuteronomy 12, 9 through 10. It says, For you have not as yet come to the rest... And to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan. And live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around. So that you live in safety. And so what was bound up in this idea of land? Well it's rest in God. It is safety. It is protection. It is to live under the enjoyment of God's ...protection and rule and authority. To be in the land was to be where God is your shepherd. Where God as your shepherd would guide you out to green pastures... ...and beside still waters. In the land is where God's presence would be. It's there that he would build his temple. It's there that God would dwell with his people... ...and bring his glory before them... But we need to recognize that the nation-state of Israel is not the end of this promise. It's merely the beginning. This was not the ultimate rest. And let me simply point you very briefly to the book of Hebrews... ...who so masterfully explains this idea for us in Hebrews 4. There the author says this, "...the promise of entering his rest still stands." For we who have believed enter that rest. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest. You see, this promise does not come with an expiration date. This promise of land and rest still stands, says the author of Hebrews. And so where is this promise of land ultimately fulfilled? Well, it finds its ultimate conclusion in Revelation 21. And John sees in a vision new heavens and a new earth being built by the Lord. And and he looks up and what does he see? New Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. There is the rest of God. There is the land. There is the fulfillment of this promise. But then secondly, there is another promise. A promise of people. Abraham is promised a nation. A great nation. A numerous nation. In fact, Genesis 15.5 is a famous verse where God comes back to Abraham and he says, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them... So shall your offspring be. A great nation. Numerous in people. Greater than you could even count. As numerous as the stars. And think about how hard that would be to believe. After all, we've already seen his wife is barren. And now God is saying, I'm going to give you innumerable children. A great nation. What a promise. But we should ask ourselves, what is this promise concerning? Who is among this nation? Who is this promise about? And recall, once again, this very simple paradigm. These promises have a partial and an ultimate fulfillment. In its partial fulfillment, this is the nation of Israel. They are the seed of Abraham, miraculously brought about by God to continue his covenant of grace. But there is... ...a more ultimate fulfillment of this promise as well. Those who are of this nation are those who have the faith of Abraham. Whether they're Jewish or whether they're Gentile... ...whether they are near or whether they are far... ...whoever comes to the promises of God with faith... ...they are among this great and powerful nation... The New Testament makes this so abundantly clear. Jesus makes this clear. Paul makes this clear. I'll just give you one verse in Galatians 3, verse 7. Paul says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This nation that God promises to Abraham, it's the same people that are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. It's the same people that we've been learning about in John that Jesus has been sent by the Father to redeem and to purchase for his Father. It's the same people who are justified, who are being sanctified, and who will one day be glorified in Christ. And so where is this promise ultimately fulfilled? I'll I'll simply point you back to the book of Revelation once again, where John looks in Revelation 7, and what does he see? a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb this is the promise of a people and god will get his people and thirdly the final blessing of the covenant of grace is a blessing final final promise is a blessing Abraham has promised a blessing. And notice that blessing is first to him. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And think about what God is saying to Abraham in this moment. How significant it is. He is, uh, in essence, attaching his name to Abraham. I will be your God forever. I will be associated with you. I will bless you. You and your offspring, why do we call Abraham, uh, excuse me, God, the God of Abraham, even to this very day, because of this promise in Genesis chapter 12. He will be forever the God of Abraham. He's going to bless him. But second, notice that this blessing also comes through Abraham. Now that Abraham is associated with the covenant name of God, we see this idea of blessings and curses which come through Abraham. God says that he will bless those who bless Abraham. Why? Because to bless Abraham now is to bless the Lord. God has set his name upon Abraham. And it's the same with curses. To curse Abraham is to curse God. But I want you to notice one other thing here as well. Notice the scope of the blessing. Look at verse 3. He says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this blessing will cover the entire earth. One day it will touch every family. It will touch every nation. Every people. All in this world Every tribe and tongue will know of the grace of God. They'll know his blessing. And what is this blessing? I'd put it forward to you. It's simply this. It is the gospel. It is the fullness of the work of Christ. It is the good news of salvation by grace alone, by faith alone. And once again, Paul is so helpful. When he says in Galatians 3 this. and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Saying in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. This blessing is the gospel. This blessing is the fullness of Christ and his work to redeem sinners. And when will this promise be fulfilled? I put it forward once again, and you shouldn't be surprised, we find its fulfillment in the book of Revelation. Only there in the final chapter, when we hear the voice on the throne saying, Behold, I am making all things new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What is this text all about? It's very simple. It is a summary of the gospel. It tells us that we must believe. That we must follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That we must repent of our sins. That we must join his ranks of people. That we must go to his land of blessing and rest. That we must go to him for eternal blessing. For eternal life. This is God's amazing Covenant of grace. Let's pray.